Well, Father, I am grateful to be here today and to start off this new year with a message about the greatness of the gospel. And I pray that as we just consider the implications of the gospel, that we will not be ashamed by it, that we will see and appreciate and utilize its power. Father, I pray that you will help me to uh, deliver a message that is faithful to you, that is faithful to your word, and that, Holy Spirit, where I fail, you will succeed in really helping us to have confidence in the great gospel message you've given us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in March of 2021, Gallup, uh, Gallup News reported that Americans' participation, or I'm sorry, membership in houses of worship dipped below 50% for the first time. Less than 50% of Americans are members of a particular house of worship. And what many people attribute that to is the rise of the nuns. You know what that means? Nuns are people who check none on the religion box. They're not Muslims, they're not Jews, they're not Christians, they're not Methodists, they mark none. And so there has been a growing trend of secularization, and you may think that that has made America less religious. But that doesn't mean that non-religious Americans are without religion. Political theorist Samuel Goldman observed that there exists a constant fixed supply of religious energy. It shows up in different places from time to time, but it cannot ever simply dissipate into nothing. Everybody worships. All of us have some need to express our religion. I was in California last week, and I saw a man walking by me with an RGB t-shirt. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. RGB, sorry. RBG. There we go. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, again, and it was interesting that when she died, just the outpouring of grief, lament that took place. One author observes that after Supreme Court Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, droves of mourners gathered outside the Supreme Court, some kneeling, some holding candles, as though they were at the Western Wall, right? There is a new religion in the United States. It's one where there's no priest, but there's activist. It's one where people are not inherently sinful, but structures of society are. There's no authoritative revelation, with the exception of science, when convenient. But the community, as far as revelation is concerned, um, listens to people's lived experiences. And while people may not go to church, this religion shapes their worldview and mandates fervent devotion. And I think this new gospel, this secular gospel, can be understood in contrast to our own. The biblical gospel teaches that man, we, we have been created by a personal God. We are made in his image, and we are to reflect his priorities. The secular gospel teaches that we have been created by chance mutations. There is no God, therefore we have to define meaning for our lives. The biblical gospel teaches that as image bearers, we have an obligation to live holy and righteous lives in accordance with the being of whose image we bear. The secular gospel teaches that we have to define our own meaning and search for our own purpose and make sense of our own life. 
And our obligation to others is to allow them to spa the space to do the same, allow them to define their own existence. The biblical gospel teaches that our purpose has been corrupted by sin. Instead of living for the glory and honor of our creator, we have rejected his rules. This is sin, and sin leads to the righteous wrath of God. The secular gospel teaches that our search for meaning and purpose has been corrupted by the oppression of others. Whether we know it or not, our race, our gender, our heteronormity, our cisgendered privileges allow us to enjoy privileges that are not afforded to others. The biblical gospel teaches that God's righteous wrath can be appeased by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ can have a complete pardon for their sin. The secular gospel teaches that the pursuit of an equitable utopia can only occur by overturning oppression. To say it again, oppressors must be stripped of their power to make for a more fair and equitable society. The biblical gospel teaches that sinners can be forgiven right with God, and that's mediated by faith. The secular gospel teaches that oppressors have to own their sins and forever apologize for the privileges they enjoyed at the expense of others. They must commit themselves to a life of activism, and this is mediated by education. The biblical gospel teaches that true and lasting joy is not to be found in this life, but in the world to come. That is where there'll be endless pleasure, bliss, and happiness, and contentment. We live our lives on credit. The secular gospel teaches that since there is no heaven, transcendence is found through sex. Therefore, we need to do everything we can to protect it, including unborn killing unborn children. So here is the question. Which one of these is the better gospel? Which one of these is the better gospel? Now, this world wants you to be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is inherently oppressive. It is wrong. It, it shrouds our ability to define our own lives and create meaning for ourselves. It's been used to oppress and manipulate people. And, and sometimes there is a temptation to want to shrink back in shame, like what we believe is, is wrong. But the fact of the matter is, the secular gospel stinks. And we're not talking about a slight odor stink. We're talking about soiled diapers in a hot trash can for a week stink. And my hope for all of us is that we have a deep conviction that we believe and we preach a better gospel. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 1, specifically verse 16 and 17, where Paul gives his conviction about the superiority of the gospel. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in the righteousness, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the central argument in the book of Romans. Paul is a person who at one point in time was opposed to the gospel. He thought the gospel was dangerous. He thought the gospel was heretical. All this talk about Jesus being Lord would lead to the worship of a false god, a false religion, which would lead to the oppression, continual oppression of the Jews by the Romans as judgment from God. But on that road to Damascus, he was knocked to the floor. Jesus appeared to him in glorious light and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why do you kick against the goats, the scales? And shrouded his vision, eventually they fell off and he realized that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the better gospel. It is good news. And he devoted his life to letting everyone know about this great gospel. He was not ashamed, right? When you're ashamed of something, you want to hide something, right? You know, if you have acne on your face, you want to figure out some way to hide it, to conceal it, to cover it. And this is what the world wants you to do with the gospel. It wants you to be ashamed of it. You have nothing to offer anybody. Keep it to yourself. Nobody wants to hear your message. That is a lie from the pit. The fact of the matter is, we have a better gospel. And Paul makes that argument, especially compared to his previous life of Judaism. It's a better gospel for four reasons. Number one, the gospel displays the power of God to save. Number two, the gospel crosses racial boundaries. Number three, the gospel reveals our righteous God. And fourth, the gospel is accessible by faith. Now, to bring you up to speed, Paul is in Corinth, and he's writing to the Roman church. And what he hopes to do is to visit Rome, and he wants to see a church that is united around the gospel where Jews and the Greek believers come together. It becomes a stable, healthy church that could eventually serve as a launching pad for further ministry to the West, to Spain specifically. And Paul wanted to go to Spain, not because he wanted to see Barcelona in the spring. He wanted to go to Spain because the gospel had not yet gotten a grip on that nation and that area and that region. See, Paul spent his whole life devoted to the gospel at great cost to himself. He was imprisoned in Philippi. He was chased out of Thessalonica. He was pelted with stones in Lystra. He was laughed at in Athens. But he kept going because he had this conviction. He was proud of the gospel. It was the greatest message on earth, and he could not suppress his urge to proclaim it. And there's some reasons why. Number one, the gospel displays the power of God to save. 116, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. This message, when proclaimed, had the power to change and transform, right? We know that words have inherent power. I just finished a biography of Churchill this past year. It was excellent. And his words had power to soothe and comfort the British people. In contrast, you had his equal in Nazi Germany. Hitler was a gifted orator. He was 
a magnificent speaker. He had this knack of when to growl, strategically use emotion, and would just mesmerize the masses. He practices speeches on soldiers. He would, he would rehearse multiple times in mirrors, knowing exactly when to yell and when to whisper and when to weep. His words had power, power to persuade people to try to wipe out the Jewish race, power to lead a country into war, and power to destroy. Words have power. How many kids have heard, you're worthless, and what kind of power does that hold, right? Words have power. But the gospel message has power to surpass all of them. The words of the gospel are powerful. I shared with you in the communion devotion, now you know why, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the essence of the gospel message. John Piper likens the term gospel message to a proclamation, one uh, that an old-fashioned herald would utter to the king's subjects. Hear ye, hear ye, all rebels, insurgents, dissidents, and protesters against the king. Hear the royal decree. A great day of reckoning is coming, a day of justice and vengeance. But now hear this, all inhabitants of the king's realm, Amnesty is herewith published by the mercy of your sovereign. A price has been paid, all debts may be forgiven, all rebellion absolved, all dishonor pardoned. None is excluded from this offer. Lay down the weapons of rebellion, kneel in submission, receive the royal amnesty as a gift of imperial love. Swear fealty to your sovereign and rise a free and happy subject of your king. Right, that's the essence of the gospel message. It is the most powerful message on this planet. Have you ever thought about that? When you speak the gospel to somebody, when you tell them the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, of the invitation to receive a pardon forgiveness on account of faith, it has the power to change someone's destiny from a hell-bound sinner to an adopted son or daughter of the king. It has the power to change somebody's heart, to, to liberate them, to take a, a drug-addicted, foul-mouthed pervert and turn them into a righteous man or woman of God. That is the, the power of the gospel message. That's why when I go to a, a funeral that is basically led by a non-gospel teaching pastor, all their words are just platitudes. They're just, they're just empty religious rhetoric. It's like they just go to the Hallmark section of sympathy cards and just read those out loud. There's no power in that message. But when you talk about the power of the gospel, the reality that Jesus lived died and rose again. It has the ability to transform people. There's a supernatural aid that comes with the gospel message, and that's something the secular gospel does not have, and it shows. 
You see, it doesn't matter if you're a slick orator. It doesn't matter if you stutter. You get the gospel message out, no matter how ineloquent, it has the exact same power to change. The power is in the message. And we rely on that to change hearts. Agreed? Now, in contrast, the secular gospel doesn't believe in heart transformation. The secular gospel wants to overturn oppression by coercing the oppressors into relinquishing their power and becoming eternal activists. And being that there is no supernatural power in this message, the only way to make sure that this transformation happens is through what? Coercion, shame, and manipulation. Remember talking to a young man at a large state university, and he's in a psychology class, and the professor singles them out and says, how does it feel to be an oppressor? And he looked around and he realized he was the only white person in the class. He was being shamed. He was being shamed. That is the secular gospel. Shame, coerce, and manipulate people into change. It's divisive, isn't it? In contrast, the biblical gospel is for all people. Look at verse 16 again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, the stipulation of salvation is faith. It's faith. We'll talk more about that later. But because it's by faith, it doesn't really matter what your ethnic identity or religious identity or gender identity is. If you have faith in the gospel, you're in. It brings people together. Now, he says to the Jew first, and we'll cover more about why that is significant, but the Jews were always regarded as the chosen people of God. They were the children of Abraham. They inherited the promise. They were given the promised land. They received the favored status of God living among them through hosting the tabernacle and then eventually the, the temple. They were to be a priest to all nations and invite people to the worship of their God. But their chosen status led to a certain amount of religious arrogance and disdain for those who are different from them. And I think this is best exemplified in Jonah, right? Do you remember Jonah? He's told to preach to the Ninevites, the arch enemies of the people of God. And instead of going east, he goes west. And God supernaturally brings him back into the fold so that he would obey that mission. And even after he preaches the gospel, well the message of repentance, not quite the gospel, but the message of repentance to the Ninevites, and they repent, he gets pretty upset about it. And God corrects them in Jonah 4.11. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left? Right? It's an expression of his compassion for all people. You see, the greatness of the gospel is it's available to Jews and to Gentiles. Nobody is excluded from the gospel message. Everybody is included. God's arms are open wide, and he doesn't push anybody away. If you have faith in him, 
you are reconciled to him, and all those who are reconciled to him can be reconciled to each other. Right? It's an inclusive message. In contrast, the secular gospel seeks to divide people. You get a PhD in intersectionality so you can figure out who is oppressed and who's not. You come up with different combinations. You, you try to find new marginalized groups so that with every marginalized group, there's another group of oppressors, right? It's all about eternal conflict, always overturning structures, always dividing people against each other, and there is no reconciliation to be found ultimately. It's hopeless. Thirdly, our gospel reveals our righteous God. Look at verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it reveals something about God, that God is righteous. God is righteous. Now, in the original Greek, righteousness meant that you fulfilled your obligation to men. You're somebody who keeps your promises. Uh, eventually, it became uh, you were righteous in filling your obligation to God, and you fulfill your obligation to God by keeping the law. Now, in this case, we have God manifesting his righteousness. How can God be righteous to keeping his own law? Well, as part of his inherent character is to be righteous. One theologian says God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. right? He always acts according to his rules. And so if he says murder is a sin and murder is wrong, he will punish murderers. Same things with liars, with thieves, adulterers, and more. A righteous God will make sure that the 9-11 hijackers don't enter some eternal paradise, but are effectively punished for their crimes against God and humanity. He will punish those members of a lynch mob. He will punish those who harm children. He will punish all those who break his law. Now, Paul doesn't necessarily have this judgmental concept in mind, which is still there. When he talks about the righteousness of God, he, he has something beyond his judgment, so much as his righteousness as far as faithfulness, that he is a God who keeps his word. We see some examples of an association between righteousness and salvation in the Old Testament. Psalm 143.1, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Psalm 143.11, for your namesake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. Calls out to God, appeals to his righteousness. Isaiah 46.13, I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Notice the link between God's promise to save and his righteousness. He will make good on his promises to save. 
He will make good on his promises to save. And what's interesting is, remember, the, when you look at Romans 1, 16, for I'm not ashamed for, of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. What is that first doing there? Well, as you recall, Israel has a special place in God's plan because he made a promise to Abraham. He said, your children will be blessed. Now, Israel was not very faithful to God, were they? They would commit spiritual adultery. They would be punished. They would be exiled, be brought back into the promised land, and they would even murder the Messiah. And yet, after that murder, he says the gospel is for the Jew first. Paul always made it a point to go to the synagogues first, to go to the Jews first. Because he understood the righteousness of God, that God will be faithful to keep his promise to the Jewish people. And as we keep on reading in Romans, specifically Romans chapter 11, we see that in the end, God will make good on his promise to save Israel. Even if it cost him his son, right? Now, we all benefit from it all right now. But God makes a promise to save his people. And he will keep that promise at the expense of the life of his son. And so we can read Romans 10.9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. And whenever Paul preaches the gospel... He preaches a fulfilled promise of God that those who believe our righteous God will show that he keeps his promises because he's righteous and he will save his people from their sins. The gospel is really a statement about the righteousness of God. He is faithful. And there's a couple implications for this. One, he is faithful to save his people from the consequences of their sin. He is faithful to save people from the righteous wrath of God. In Romans 3, 23 through 26, we see how God vindicates his children. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What's really interesting about God's righteousness is that the gospel preserves his righteousness. You ever thought about that? A righteous God can't just overlook sin. He can't pretend like it doesn't really matter. He has to fulfill his obligation to the law. And he does that by punishing Jesus instead of you. It also shows his righteousness in that God kept his promise to save his people, of which you all are blessedly included. You are saved from the consequences of your sin. Secondly, God's righteousness liberates you from the power of sin. From the power of sin. Romans 6, 4. 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, because of what Christ did on the cross, you have been liberated from the power of sin. I, I think there's no greater illustration of this than watching someone go down to an addiction. Have you had people you love been enslaved to alcohol or drugs, pornography? It, it, it truly ruins their life. And that is a picture, a small, that's a picture of what sin does to all of us, right? There's an addiction to sin, an addiction to, to bitterness, an addiction to anger, an addiction to lust. But the good news of the gospel is you don't have to sin. Christ died to the power of sin to set you free. You, you don't have to do it. You don't have to give in to Satan's temptations. You don't have to indulge this fleshly impulse. You have been liberated. God is faithful to liberate his people from their true enemy. See, in all of this, what you see is that this power of salvation is mediated by the faithfulness of God. He's faithful to keep his promises, and he's faithful to do what it takes to liberate his people. We are delivered by God's faithfulness. Hear me out here, okay? We are delivered by God's faithfulness, not our faithfulness. Does that make sense? We are delivered by God's faithfulness, not our faithfulness. This means that our works do not contribute in the slightest to our salvation. We can't obligate God's faithfulness. God just is faithful. You see, that's why a self-righteous Christian is an oxymoron. We're, we're not saved by keeping rules. We are saved by grace. And this is in stark contrast to the secular gospel, where salvation, this utopia, is accomplished by activism and by keeping rules and by educating people to do better, right? You ever heard that phrase, we need to do more, we need to do better, we need to do more, we need to do better. There's no more enslaving term than that. I read an interesting interview in, uh, in the Wall Street Journal. Um, the person was Noah Rothman, who's a journalist for Commentary Magazine. And he wrote a book called The New Puritanism, right? The New Puritanism and it's basically a critique of the secular gospel. And how part of this Puritan movement within it is you always have to be aware of the suffering of other people. You, you can't have gratitude. You can't be content because other people are suffering. Therefore, you always need to draw attention to their misery. And this is what he said. We just went through the 4th of July in which the government of Orlando put out the following statement. And I quote, a lot of people probably don't want to celebrate our nation right now, and we can't blame them. When there is so much division, hate, and unrest, why on earth would you want to have a party celebrating any of it? The same could be said uh, for the practice of gather around the table for Thanksgiving or Christmas. You are instructed in you're instructed you are instructed in the instruction manuals of the modern new Puritan to engage your relatives and confront them with the evils that surround them so that they can be aware of the extent to which they are benefiting from the horrors that are all around them. And they're ignorant of them, right? It's the salvation by advocacy and activism. You're not a good person 
unless you're actively confronting sin. Always, continually, do more. We can do better. Do more. That's a terrible gospel. Fourthly, our gospel is accessible by faith. Look at verse 17 again. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteousness shall live by faith. You see, one of um, the distinctives of Christianity and, let's say, Judaism and and Islam is cultural flexibility. Cultural flexibility. Uh, For instance, in Islam, women are told to wear uh, certain items of clothing, a hijab or a burqa, depending on how extreme you want to be. And so the there is a conformity that takes place externally in those societies. In Judaism, part of the distinctiveness is the diet that you eat. You can't have bacon, right? That enough is a reason to convert. You can't eat milk and cheese together. Say goodbye to cheeseburgers, right? You have to eat kosher, right? So there's this idea that you have to maintain Uh, that salvation is really mediated by how you act and the works that you do. But Paul makes it very clear that we're not saved by our righteousness, but by God's righteousness, right? By his faithfulness. And then he says, For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It doesn't matter how you dress or what you eat. What matters is that you have faith. And when he says the righteous shall live by faith, he's actually quoting the book of Habakkuk. Do you guys know the story of Habakkuk? He is ministering to an unfaithful nation who practices idolatry, and they're about to be conquered by the Chaldeans, who are even worse offenders than the Jews. And so he kind of senses that there is some injustice here. Why are we using this extra degenerate nation to judge us for our degeneracy? God explains himself and he calls on all the righteous people. Don't try to sidestep this this consequence for your sin by trying to make an alliance with your conquerors by worshiping their gods or worshiping other gods. You are to live by faith. Faith in Yahweh in spite of all the bad things that are happening in your life, right? God's holy people are to live by faith, right? And faith is not some sort of intellectual ascent where you check, you kind of check mark, okay, Jesus rose from the dead. He's the son of God. There you go. I have faith. Faith is kind of the conviction of things unseen, the conviction that, that Jesus is, is Lord, the conviction that he knows what is best, the conviction that he's in charge. Does that make sense? It's that internal conviction that expresses itself in different ways. A couple that is dating will not engage in premarital sex because they have a conviction faith that Jesus has something better. When Christians decide not to cheat on their taxes and maybe overpay, they have a conviction that the Lord has something better. When Christians do some impossible task like forgive their enemies, they do so with the conviction that God has something better. When Christians endure persecution, we do so with hope, faith, and joy with a conviction that God has something better. That is living by faith. And anyone who does that 
has a right relationship with the Lord. Right? So as Christians, our faith is not mediated by wearing a hijab or eating kosher or even church attendance. Right? Our faith is mediated by a heartfelt trust and commitment to the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the glory of his gospel. If you believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, if you believe that God in his kindness put your sin on Jesus and that he paid it all and then rose from the dead, if you have believed that Jesus is still alive and in heaven waiting to return, if you have belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ, sincere belief, you will be saved. You will be saved. God will save you from the consequences of your sin and the power of your sin. You can be fully expectant when you breathe your last that, that when you stand before the Lord, Jesus will stand beside you and say, she's with me. He's with me, and you'll be saved. That's it. And that's the hope that we have, all right? Isn't that great news? That is not faith in what we do, it's faith in what God does. In contrast, the secular gospel teaches that righteousness only belongs to the oppressed group. Outsiders can never be a part of it. Maybe if you go transgender or come out of the closet, then you can be an oppressed group and get part of it, but... Basically, your whole life, your righteousness is dependent on you being an activist and always proving yourself. Do more, do better. Right? We have a, a better gospel. We have a better gospel. And there's three implications I want to close with. Number one, I think it's safe to say that we live in the midst of a, of a culture war. And often within the culture war, we see the weapons that they have where they can spread their gospel through coercion using the government, the educational system, the media, academia. And there, is a, 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 there can be a thought that the best way to fight this culture war is by trying to retake these institutions. And I'm not trying to say that's a bad thing to do. But I'm saying we need to think beyond this being a cultural war to being a religious war. And the best way to fight a religious war is to preach and proclaim a better gospel. Right? That is our not-so-secret weapon. The secular gospel stinks. It is oppressive. It does not lead to human flourishing. It damns people to hell and makes them miserable the whole way. We have a better gospel. That is the chief weapon that we have. Secondly, we need to understand that the presence of a false gospel actually makes the, beautiful, the gospel that we preach more beautiful. I remember um, talking to a, a pastor who was part of the Jesus movement. He was saved through Calvary Chapel in the 70s in Southern California. And he told me about how he used to go witnessing on one of the piers. 
And one night, he and his disciple were witnessing on a pier, and on the same pier was a Satanist and his disciple. And this Satanist looked like a Satanist. And so what he would do is he would wait for the Satanist and his disciple to approach and talk to people about Satanism. And then my friend, who had a nice long beard, long hair, or kind of a white tunicky shirt with kind of the bell-bottom sleeves, he looked like Jesus, <laughs> would then approach the people who just were approached by the Satanist. And he said, it was the best night of witnessing of my entire life. <laughs> you ever thought about that? I mean, this secular gospel is awful. And it's an opportunity, right? You know, it doesn't have to be this way. Did you know that you don't have to be better? You don't have to be enslaved to the expectations of others. Christ can set you free. Thirdly, there are more people spiritually interested than you even know. We're kind of like this underground movement where some people, they see it, they go along with it, they know they're being watched, could be canceled, and they want to know, is there a better way? I am surprised at the spiritual openness. Now, some of you know that every other year I go on a ski trip to Park City, Utah. It is swanky, I know. And the reason why I go is uh, years ago at my old church, I discipled a young man from the Bay Area. And during the time that we met together, his life was radically changed. And, and since that time, he's become a very successful businessman and a very generous friend. And so he basically hires me out to go to Park City and evangelize all his friends. He even prepares a dossier giving me the spiritual profile of everybody who is going to be there. I kind of like it. Being a hired gun is kind of fun. <laughs> Plus, I get a ski. And it's honestly been some of the best witnessing I've, I've ever had. I mean, it's amazing. These are all highly successful, high-earning people from the Bay Area. I want to tell you about Jasper. Jasper uh, came to the U.S. from the Netherlands uh, to play water polo for the University of Pacific. He is a well-built, strapping, handsome man. Now, if you know anything about the Netherlands, Netherlands is a very, very secular country. If you were to talk to somebody about Western Europe and ask them the question, what happens after you die? They say, I don't know. I never think about it. I mean, it is truly like God is just not even part of the equation. On top of that, he, is a, he was a, a project manager for a biotech firm, so he's very committed to science and very much has a scientific mindset. He's living in the Bay Area, the most secular enclave of the United States. He, at the time I met him, was, was in a dating relationship. So you go down the list, and there is every reason to believe that he would never become a Christian. In fact, the first time I shared the gospel with him about seven years ago, he told me matter-of-factly, in a very nice way, because he is a very nice man, um, I don't like that message. I don't like it. Okay. Well, I saw him 
two years later, and then three years ago, um, he ended up getting married to his girlfriend at the time, and we had a pretty good, surprisingly good conversation. And so I had a copy of Greg Gilbert's What is the Gospel and a MacArthur Study Bible, paid for by Grant to give to all the friends, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm a funded mercenary missionary. <laughs> and I decided to give them to him. Well, last year, that was three years ago, well, last year I got a call from him and he wanted to talk. And so he set up a Zoom call and he told me he wasn't going to be able to go on the ski trip, but he wanted to talk about what happened since we met. Well, he read the What is the Gospel on the plane ride back to the Bay Area, and he really liked it. And then he had the MacArthur Study Bible that he put on his nightstand, and it just sat there for about three months. Eventually, he thought, you know what? Dave gave me this Bible. I better read it. So he picked it up, and he started in Matthew, which is what I recommended. And he said as he read it, you know, being a scientist, he just had this mental block that every time there was a miracle or something supernatural, he just thought, oh, come on. He just couldn't get past that. Well, finally, he decided to, to change his tactic, that maybe I ought to read the Bible in the way it was meant to be understood. So he read it like it was true and that it actually happened. And when that happened, it became fascinating to him. He loved reading the Bible, even like the notes at the bottom of the page. A faithful friend of his, who's also a Christian, kept on feeding him different podcasts, uh, website articles, and some books. And he was just reading it continually over and over again, and he loved it. Well, after about a year, he reached a, a crisis point. He told me that social anxiety was something that he often struggled with, and one day he pulled into his driveway and he had a full-on panic attack. And in the midst of that panic attack, he found himself praying to Jesus Christ. And he thought, what am I doing? But then he realized that he did believe in Jesus Christ and he prayed to him. And at that point in time, he understood that he was born again. Uh, so when we talked, I directed him to a, a Bible teaching church. And I want to show you a picture, in fact. This is Jasper getting baptized. Right? I mean... <laughs> don't ever let people tell you. Don't let Satan tell you no. Right? The gospel is good news. He's been liberated, set free. He can pray for his wife. But the gospel is good news. And there's more, there's more Jaspers out there. Did you know that? There's more of them out there. But we won't be able to find them unless we tell them. And the last thing we should ever do is to be ashamed of the gospel message. Right? This world should be ashamed of their message. Right? They should be ashamed of the secular gospel that oppresses and damns people. That's what people should be ashamed of. You have nothing to be ashamed of, friend. We have a better gospel. Let's go tell other people about it. Let's pray. Well, Father, I do 
just pray for this church. You have entrusted us with a great and glorious gospel message. And I pray that we will not be ashamed of it, but in contrast, we will fearlessly tell the world that needs to hear it. Lord, I I just sense that there is a ripe harvest waiting for us. That what Satan and this world meant for evil, you're going to use for good. That we'll be able to rescue people from a false gospel and shed light on the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ. Lord, I know that there's people in our lives who need to hear it. Give us the conviction and the courage to tell them about it. Bring people into our lives and into our church who need to hear this message. May we be unashamed of the greatness and the glory of our better gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.